back, season four of the Telly Award-winning podcast, back from hiatus, coming at you like the Honorable Judge Milton C. Hardcastle and ex-con Mark Skid McCormick, pushing it to the floor until the engine screams, driving like the demon that drives your dreams. I am Ryland Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant Banjax, and now Shang Origins, the other voice of the dark, the man in the box to the right is... David Avalone, uh, screenwriter, comic book writer, film dude, uh, coffee achiever. Love it. Yeah, I have a couple more sips of that. Uh, if you missed any of our previous conversations, conversations uh, featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Rodney Barnes, and many, many more. Our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and check it out. Um, good to see you, Avalone. It's been uh, a good while since we were parked here on uh, StreamYard. Uh, what have yeah. you been up to during your hiatus? Uh, I wrote for a TV show called Bat Wheels. Nice. I did three episodes of that. Uh, I just realized I'm going to give a shout out. This uh, this fine coffee mug that says "Right Drink Edit Sober." Oh, nice. Uh, or "Right Drunk Edit right Sober" down. is from Lenny Mud, okay. uh, who makes fine, fine ceramic products, and you can order those for <laughs> Xmas or Kentmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa. Uh, on the on the Instagrams, I that think. was the uh, the the Charles Bukowski uh, rules of writing. Um, I have yeah, a, have yeah. Like a, I'm a, I'm not a big drinker while I write, but while I think about writing, oh yes, very much. So. <laughs> yeah, I used to be. I don't do it anymore, but I'm a I'm a I'm a big Bukowski guy. I have been for a while. Um, yeah, I got a uh, you know uh, I, I I got a movie shot in Greece, and that's in the can and being edited right now. It looks uh, looks beautiful. You know, Congratulations. Uh, uh, TV series set up at Lionsgate. All the uh, all of the um, uh, network meetings set for January now. Uh, I wrote a novel. <laughs> wow. um, I, uh, it, it's weird listing all this stuff. And I got hired to um, write a new movie about Hell's Angels in the 60s. So I'm um, uh, not a ton of comic stuff going on right now. Fashing Origins still uh, dropping via um, Dynamite um, in the near future. So look out for that. But uh, yeah, I'm busy um, and I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. So good news. That is good stuff. Yeah, but uh, we have an incredible show today, checking in with some old friends and some new friends. So why don't we bring on the crew? Okay, here's Matt, Matthew, and Hello. Catherine. Howdy, howdy. Welcome. Hello. Welcome, guys. Uh, as always, we like to have people introduce themselves. I don't know what part of your resume you want to talk about. Uh, but uh, So Catherine, tell kids at home a little bit about yourself. Yes, and I love your mug. I think I'm going to order one. Nice. Right? It's pretty I, nice. Yeah, it is. Um, so I am Catherine Lubier. I've spent about half of my career in the private sector, half as a political staff, including the Prime Minister of Canada, the, second, uh, the 22nd Prime Minister of Canada, and the Premier of my home province of Quebec in Canada. I've um, advised the corporate world and CEOs, global CEOs, and that is what I do today. And aside from that, I have a few ventures, uh, and one of those ventures is with Matt Medney, and that's what we're going to talk about today, I think. Yes, I, we will definitely be chatting about that. And Matt, let, uh, the, let the kids at home know a little bit about you. Uh, so I'm a writer of books and comics, and I also... Uh, sit as the CEO and publisher of Heavy Metal, 
uh, and uh, work with Kat on the Fifth Force amongst a few other projects. And a fun fact that I did not know is that Ryland actually wrote a novel versus a comic, so I want to learn more about that as well. <laughs> I'm sure we will get into it. First off, though, the important thing to deal with, it is we're recording this on Monday the 5th, and how is Brazil doing? Uh, we just scored a second goal. It is 2-0 in the 13th minute. I feel nice. pretty good. Yeah, I feel yeah. pretty good about Brazil's chances right now. Pretty good now, right I'm, now. now I'm invested. I wasn't, but now... Now I have a rooting interest in uh, in how Brazil does in the World Cup today. Yeah, my my college roommate was uh, uh, he was half Brazilian, half Colombian, and uh, and sort of lived his whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 good. Uh, he was a good soccer player, and and he certainly had some good rooting interests. And so um, it's been a while since uh, you know since I watched a a, a Brazil uh, soccer game uh, in its entirety. But there was a time in my life where uh, <laughs> where, 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 where I was in. You know, it's yeah, like so. watching a, a nightclub. They're just dancing dancing with the soccer ball on the field. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Very nice. Well, I think uh, we'll get back to, to some origin stuff, but I want to start with the origin of this one project. And uh, Matt and Catherine, how did you connect to put this together? Kat, do you want to start? Sure. So I uh, was connected to Matt through uh, a friend of ours who's involved in um, his side of the business. And at the time, I was working on uh, what became the largest renewable energy deal uh, in North America, which is to bring clean energy from Quebec, uh, where we have a lot, um, all the way down to New York City uh, through a cable that is most of the time underwater. And, and so when my friend came to know about the project, he, he immediately you know, said, hey, I think that's the start of a great story or could inspire a great story on energy mm -hmm. and, and introduce me to, to Matt. Can I interrupt for just a second? I'm really curious. What is the clean energy source in uh, Quebec? Is it so hydroelectric? The, is it yes, it's hydroelectric. And, um, and so uh, Hydro-Quebec is the largest renewable company in North America. And it's a company that has one shareholder, the government of Quebec. And for many, many years, you know, that project had been in the works, uh, but it is hard to, uh, for any infrastructure project to get off the ground for many reasons, political, you know, stakeholders, uh, environmentalists. And, and so, um, you know, finally we, we got it done and uh, clean hydroelectricity is a stable source of energy that can help take in, um, you know, uh, wind and solar energy, which are intermittent form of energy. And that's the beauty of this project is this huge influx of stable, uh, clean energy all the way down to New York City. Uh, and the station is in Astoria, Queens. And so that contributes to, I think, over 20% of the clean energy objectives of New York State. That's wild. And that it's amazing that it generates more power than the entire province of Quebec needs. Like yes. that there's enough left over to share with, you know, the biggest city on the in the Western Hemisphere is, is pretty amazing. It's amazing. And it's something Quebec, it's it's kind of like the moment, this this moment for Quebec in history where we've been producing this energy uh, since the 70s. Uh, this mm. is a very, very big visionary project that uh, people before us uh, thought of with all the water we have and and uh 
topography in, in Quebec. And it's so great that now we can channel it, uh, you know, south of the border um, and, and this whole quantity. You say it's a lot. It is a lot. But now with, with crypto and with companies having the, these uh, pledges to be green, you know, most of them want to come to Quebec uh, to establish uh, high energy facilities, uh, manufacturing operations or crypto. So we're being, uh, I say we, because I'm, I, I still think I'm in a government, you know, I didn't get the memo, I'm not. But, uh, you know, Quebec is now really looking at every project very carefully in terms of benefits back to, uh, to Quebec, because, of course, uh, it's very much sought after. So Sure, that makes sense. So, friend connects you with Matt. Matt, why don't you pick up the story from there? Yeah, and and when Kat and I first started talking about it, I was just you know enamored by the idea of being able to you know educate about a topic so exciting and important because you know as Kat said, whether it's crypto, whether it's just evolution of technology, the you know requirements for clean and reusable and renewable energy to help elevate the way that we've created society is inevitable because we can't we can't use the amount of technology that we have on you know prehistoric energy sources and think that we'll be able to um, push forward so being able to use yes, that we, we are all out of dinosaurs <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> no we it, it, it will it will be um you know I, I think you know oil is just a silly silly way to, <laughs> to create energy when we have nuclear or hydroelectric and all these other much safer and cleaner and better forms of energy. So I thought, why not use time as a idea to, um, to, to, to use as a lever in being able to talk about how energy can, you know, be adopted into new forms and also how we can wean off of old forms. And is it possible to do it you know, fast, or do you need to do it slowly? What are some of the repercussions, both pro and against? And all of these ideas sort of came spewing into my mind when Kat and I first started talking. And that's sort of, I think, the impetus for the fifth force is being able to have an honest conversation about how energy affects our everyday lives and what sources of energy we can use and how quickly we can implement them. And, and we should say the, the fifth force is available now, correct? Yes, yes, it is available yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, widely. Okay, so go on out and look at that. Um, I mean, this stuff is sort of music to my ears, Matt. And as a as as an editor, you know, owner of a a sci-fi, you know, uh, publishing company. Um, I mean, you see, I, I mean, you were on a panel yesterday. What do editors want? And you were talking about the hundreds, thousands, millions of proposals that you you receive every day. <laughs> and I'm sure that. I'm sure that 95, 99% of them get rejected because they're about nothing. You know what I'm saying? Is 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 like yeah. okay? Here's a sci-fi tale. Here's a time travel tale. Here's a you know. But 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 when you get down to it, it's what every writer has to ask his or herself, and and what most don't, unfortunately, is okay. What is this about? What I like about this process is you are starting with it's about this. Now let's find a very interesting way to package this idea. Let's find a delivery system for it. Um, you know that, that that's tested and, and palatable and, and and very interesting. I mean, I think that that's that's a really interesting way to sort of uh, uh, for a story to begin. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think you know back to what we were talking about yesterday with the funneling the 200, 100, 50, 25, one. How do you tell your story in those you know increments of words if you can't? 
say it in one or in three, then like there isn't an actual meaning to it. And you're just making the umpteen thousand version of Batman as yeah. we talked about, right? You yeah. need to have that, that reason for existence, that reason for if you're not there to talk about it, that mm. somebody picks it up and has the question, right? I, I think something that has always driven me as a creator and something I look for in pitches, as we were talking about yesterday, but also what I think is really prevalent in The Fifth Force is, I think Kat, myself, and Morgan, who's our other co-writer on the story, um, do a really good job of positioning what we feel the right future is, but we don't make that the last stand in the story. The, the, the real goal of a story that has a real world implication like this is just the ability to make someone who reads it ask a question. What do yeah. I think of this? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if they agree or if they disagree. I actually think that people who will read this and go, clean energy isn't going to work. We need to stay on fossil fuels. We need to stay on oil. Honestly, that's great because it's getting them to think. I might not agree with it. I don't think that it's the right decision. But if we can't, as creators, come up with a story that asks a provocative question as to why do I think this, then we're not doing our job. Yeah. No. I will say as an aside, and I think it's one of the more interesting parts of the creative process, it can start from a million different places. And a lot of times, like with me, it will start with an image that compels me. And to me, one of the most fascinating parts of the process of writing is sometimes you don't know why. And you're, you know, you're, you're into laying out a story that you find compelling for some reason. And then you, you know, you write 10 pages and you go, Oh, I'm processing this. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm, uh, this is a bad, this is going to be about what this is really about is loss. And I think, you know, what happens with bad storytelling is when you take a story that has nothing to do, or I should say a plot that has nothing to do with your subtext and you shoehorn your subtext onto it. Uh, as an example, HG Wells, the war of the worlds is about colonialism. Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner somehow think it's about being a terrible father, <laughs> which is easily the most who gives a shit thing you could graft onto. When I started watching that movie, like really Spielberg still going through his divorced dad nonsense <laughs> in, in the, in the Martian invasion movie. Do like, didn't we do that in independence day also? Like Wait, we people have game? already grafted Wait, that hey, dumb idea this onto this. I'm going to give you a title and you tell me what it really means. Right. Yeah. And just like, no, man, that is not what this is about at all. Why did you? Okay. Fine. Well, you know. Tell me what Bicentennial Man's about. That one is, isn't that about surrogate fathers and surrogate family members? Yeah. Like in its best case, like that's about a robot that never dies and is the perfect grandfather nanny. Right. I only exactly. know the, I only know the book. I haven't yeah. really sat down and seen the whole movie but that like that actually has something to do with something you know again exactly. as an as an aside the people who do the deckard is a robot theory of blade runner i'm like but it's a story about robots teaching a bad human being how to be a better human being that's the irony of the story if deckard's a robot it's a it's a movie about robots talking to one another and robots learning from robots and i thematically there's nothing happening there Right. You know, which is which that's is the movie you want it to be great, but that is 
not what that book is about, and it's really not what the movie's about. But uh, anyway, as an aside, to get back into this specifically, science fiction, people can overdo the prescriptive nature. The idea that you're trying to not only predict the future, you're trying to manifest the future. But undeniably, when something science fictional is powerful, if you've ever seen an iPad, you know that 20 years of Macintosh generations tried to create that clipboard that Captain Kirk is handed on the bridge in every episode <laughs> of Star Trek. That silver clipboard that he looks at and has a st metal stylus, signs it, hands it back. I don't know why they were obsessed with the metal clipboard from Star Trek, but 20 years of design and millions of dollars, possibly billions, went into creating a prop from Star Trek that now you know, a lot of people are very excited to use flip phones, <clears throat> flip phones themselves, like phones. Why did they need to flip open? Because William Shatner flips over his open his phone. And that's so awesome. And we got to do that in the first generation of cell phones. So, you know, turning to science fiction as a uh, culture, as a, as a signpost, hey, maybe move the culture in this direction. So I want to ask Catherine first, like, was it your idea to go to science fiction as a way to tell this story? Like, and, and what, what went into that decision? Good question. I think, you know, the fact is we, we didn't really want to tell the story of the hydro deal in the first place. It was right. mostly around the power of water. Um, and with that project as an inspiration, now, science fiction is, this is my first experience. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've, you know, watched comics when I was young. I, I was born in Montreal. So in French, we had a lot of uh, those Japanese manga type comics on TV. Um, I, you know, my favorite character was uh, uh, Albator, Captain uh, Harlock, uh, and sure. the little girl, I think her name is Mayo. Um, so, you know, this world has always fascinated me. And I just thought in, in the beginning, when I started talking to Matt, I thought this is an amazing way of just opening up your imagination and bringing your heroes, you know, to live and travel through time wherever you want uh, on the theme of energy and the planet. So I didn't overthink the fact that we were going to use sci-fi, you reappeared. Uh, uh, but, uh, I was thrilled from the beginning to understand the process because I know nothing about the process of putting together a graphic novel. So, you know, the story, the writers, uh, the illustrators, uh, the colors, uh, everything came to me as something extra exciting, uh, mm -hmm. for, for the first time to, to imagine where we would bring the heroes in the next chapter. Mm -hmm. And uh, go ahead, Matt. No, I, I was just going to say, I think, you know, something that Kat said there that I really latched on to is when we first started talking about it, and, you know, with this book, <clears throat> I, I wear my hero hat, you know, for those listening, um, you know, Hero Projects was a company I started six years ago, which is aimed at making custom comic books. And I still reside at that company as well. And, you know, he Heroes published through Heavy Metal. There's a whole family tree there. But one of the things that we always see when we're doing hero books with clients and partners is that, you know, 
clients are always right and clients always think they know what's right and clients have a very specific way that they want to make something happen and what was really refreshing when we started this project was cat was the exact opposite she wanted to you know have tenants of ideas that permeated through the story but really relied on us to shape that in a way that we felt would work for this medium rather than trying to you know fit a square in a circle you know there were ideas that we wanted to make sure we tackled and then there was the delivery mechanism that morgan and myself thought worked best for this medium and being able to work so freely um from those two points of view i think made this book like really amazing and you know it's something that we've already been getting it's been out for a month and I think there's, you know, a handful of libraries and school districts that have already been having conversations with us about, you know, bringing it into curriculum. And, you know, some books, you know, set out to win a Ringo, Ringo some set out to win a Hugo, some set out to, you know, sell 100,000 copies. You know, our, our goal with this book has always been how do we get it into the education system? How do we create something that can give a unique point of view to this problem? to a younger generation so they can start asking the question. Yeah, I, and I, I guess- Go ahead. Uh, yeah, if I can add, yeah. you know, it was important for me too to not do a book that was only going to be on this ideology that there's you know a rosy world out there that we're going to fall into all of a sudden where you know there's no more pollution and no, it requires hard work. It requires uh, you know, uh, reflection. It requires a transition. It cannot be too hasty. And as we were, uh, you know, putting the the pieces together for the book, you know, the reality of Ukraine and Europe and Ukraine and Germany was happening. And we were, I remember, we were emailing and texting each other, saying, "Oh my God, this is so current. We just talked about this, and this is in our chapter one." Or so I had a a, a lot of uh, uh, fun doing this. I'm passionate with geopolitics, and I I think that. The, the whole time when the writers were coming to me, I was trying to steer uh, them uh, 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 into this direction of, well, it might not be all that white or all that, that gray, not that they, they don't do it themselves, but this was important for me, that the message to this younger generation <clears throat> we're trying to reach is, um, you know, you have to, to plan this transition really well, or else, you know, you're going to be in a situation, for example, where, a production of fossil fuel will be in uh, authoritarian rogue countries' hands, and basically mm -hmm. using energy as a as a weapon of war. And right. and you know democracies would look at each other and say, "What the hell did we do here?" And look, people have been doing this. You know, Dune. I read Dune as a teenager and was mm -hmm. not particularly paying attention to the allegory of it. And then when I read it again as an adult, I was like, "Wow, this is incredibly unsubtle." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, Quebec uh, filmmaker that did yeah, the, the yeah, one. Yeah, no, it, but yeah, but you know, but the premise of like there's a natural resource that controls all commerce and it's under the sand <laughs> in a yes. war torn region held by various empire European empires at various times. It's 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 remarkably nail on the head. Uh, it is, you know, it, in to the degree that it's Lawrence of Arabia in space. Uh, but, but again, like it's, it, it, that is a worthwhile thing. And there are reasons that stories get told over and over and over again. Uh, and movies get remade over and over again and books never go out of print. 
and partially it's because they don't, you know, it's still who controls, you know, the spice is still a very relevant question in the 21st century. You know, yes, the and, and it's, are battling it out in Ukraine right now over, over, you know, who controls the spice. So, exactly. And, and even further, you know, further to what you're saying, uh, we think that it's not, but it is. It, it's, yeah. And that's, I guess, a big message of the book, too, is, uh, you know, uh, there's there's bad actors in this world and good actors in this world. And, you know, uh, we need to preserve uh, the world we live in and our values and the way we we see the future, et cetera. So there's a lot of that in there. And we had fun, especially with, you know, chapters like uh, the President Kennedy chapter with the with the uh, energy bill and, and bringing our heroes into right into the 60s in this uh, context and situation, for example, like things could have been different. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, 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 I, oh, go ahead, man. You got something? No, no, no. no. I was I was just going to say I I agree completely. And, and honestly, David, it's not that I didn't capitulate the two, but just hearing you say who controls the spice is an issue. And I'm <laughs> like, it's so true. Who controls the spice? And I want to mention, I mean, as we speak today, there is a town of, I think, 40,000 people in North Carolina that has no power because a sect of evangelical Christian terrorists knocked out their power, literally assaulted the power station so that there could no, be no power at a drag club for a drag show. No 40,000 40, people are in the cold and in the dark because a handful of nut jobs were worried about men wearing dresses and priorities and, and were yeah and were so upset about it that they attacked the power grid of their own town to yeah, prevent I, I, that, the that, that is crazy that town? what's that do they live in that town honestly i don't know writers, i mean I, you know i don't know that they've been caught or it's been tracked down yet exactly but, but the writer and storyteller in me has like four questions instantly. Do they live in the town? Do they have active generators? Do they realize they're going to knock out all the power? Are they in the cold too? Yeah. Like, because if yeah. they had back generators, it'd be pretty easy to just go around the neighborhood and see who still has power. Yeah. Those are the questions right. probably. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 but these, yeah. The, the number of, uh, you know, uh, concluded attacks or planned attacks of that type are, are, are it's humongous. You remember the, uh, uh, the hack on that pipeline that mm -hmm. threw power mm -hmm. out for, for so many days uh, right here in, in the United States. So uh, power companies like the Hydro-Quebec that inspired the story um, goes on and has uh, to defend against so multiple uh, uh, acts like that. I remember going to the control room and, and being you know speechless for a few minutes when I saw the board. So it is, it is a reality. We are completely dependent on that. People can't heat their mm -hmm. homes or, or even, you know, eat when there's no power. So it, it is uh, what you're saying and, and the anecdote that you're bringing in is, is just eye-opening. Yeah, and, and look, it's not like it's a new idea. You know, the, the, in World War II, the Allies were bombing power plants too. Like it's not a, the idea that this is a thing that you do is not particularly, I mean, and look, people were poisoning rivers, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 2000 yeah, years ago to wipe out villages. It's, it's yeah. the same basic premise. Right. I'm, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just I'm very intrigued by the partnership. I mean, I think that you know, again, this is a you know, this show is called the Writers Block. Most of our um, our audience, they're creators or would be creators, and 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 they like to see how the sausage is made. And I'm just there's some very interesting things at work here. I mean, uh, Catherine, it's interesting to me to see you know somebody who who works in policy, who works in in in, in politics, who works in messaging. And, um, you know, you have your normal playbook. I mean, I, I actually started out in politics. I didn't, I didn't work in it for a long time, but, um, but, you know, I, I got out of it because of frustrations and, and how hard it was to move the needle sometimes. I know you're so happy you did today, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I'm, I'm, I, I, I never looked back. I keep believe going me. back. <laughs> yeah. Particularly with how ugly American politics has become. I mean, politics are ugly everywhere, but, but I, I don't know. I think we maybe take the cake here. Maybe you'll disagree, but, um, but I, I'm just interested in this idea that, um, you know, thinking outside the box, it's like, okay, well, how do we, the, the, the normal avenues are not reaching enough people. It becomes white noise, right? Uh, That's right. what is another newspaper story going to do? You know, uh, right. uh, um, and, and people are just deaf to it at a certain point. So how do we, um, how do we repackage this or, or how do we, um, I mean, based on what Matt said, it's okay. Well, how do we start the conversation with a new group of people in a new arena? Um, all of those things are, are, are very interesting. And, um, and it's not a completely foreign concept, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, art has started political social conversations, uh, uh, forever and, and, and artists have been, you know, ahead of the curve in terms of uh, progressive thought and art, you know, if you want to know where society is headed, uh, 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 both in a positive and negative manner, uh, manner, look at the art, right? That, yeah. That's where we're going to be in 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And so um, this marriage is very interesting to me. It's, um, you know, it's this, it's this opportunity. Um, and then on Matt's side, you know, Matt, I mean, something that we, we preach here um, is that, you know, there are too many people that just Google this shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And and I, I, you know, somebody very easily could have seen an article about this, you know, hydroelectric plant and be like, oh, you know what? This would be very interesting. Let me let me read this one article about this plant and let me fold it into. Uh, but but you can smell that shit from from you know a hundred miles away. Again, you talk about these these um, uh, the proposals coming in, right? It's like, oh well. Well, he Googled that, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, 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 and David and I, we've never been Google it people. It's like, let's, you know, my, one of my first big jobs in Hollywood, um, the script that broke me, um, I had to write about a Russian Armenian gang war. And if I Googled it, people would know, you know? And so I had to go in, I had a friend introduce me to, uh, uh, an Armenian bookie who introduced me to this person. I end up in a Russian contraband house. I, I end up, uh, in bars drinking with these guys. And I saw how they interacted and how they shook hands and, and, and when they got drunk, how they mouthed off and how, uh, arguments got settled and all of that stuff ended up in the script. You know, I'm, I'm writing a... I'm writing a movie now that takes place uh, in in Germany uh, um, uh, in the late 70s uh, in uh, in in East Berlin. The walls up. American music is uh, is banned, and it's based on a true story. These guys like they were sort of smuggling American music in uh, at first just to throw parties and like meet girls, but it it started it it, it basically gave birth to a, a legit political movement that a lot of people um, uh, credit with uh, bringing down the wall eventually. And um, and I wasn't there. I wasn't even alive. I, I am an American who grew up in Detroit. 
And so if I Googled this shit, everyone would know. And so we 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 met the actual guys and we we had this conversation going with them for two and a half years. And every draft of the script was give it back to them. And it's like, oh, well, this wouldn't have been like that. We would have said this instead. This wouldn't have been here. This would have been there. And and so writing about this, this issue where you got to get the politics right, you got to get the uh, the science right, the ideas, and having someone like Catherine that you go to and be like, hey, we're trying to do this. How would this work? Uh, mean, there's yeah. a specific part of the story where we uh, bring in these indigenous uh, natives from from Canada and because we go back in time to this era and I'm trying to make, I'm trying to say in a way that doesn't give away too much, but we all know it's a time travel story. So, you know, we go back to this time and uh, we meet these natives and, you know, it was really, you know, what's really amazing with having Kat is to your point, like if you just Google something on the surface, you're not going to get the full story, but Kat was able to provide like the right material for us to understand who these people were why they were there and then use cat as a sounding board and i mean Kat, i'll let you speak to that specific section but i thought that we did a really great job of capturing who they were as a people and why you know they're there that them being there at that time was was appropriate for the story yeah it's a good it's a good example because you know there's others where you can you people who google it could google it and and get it pretty much right but in this particular case, it's different because, you know, Google was not made uh, to reflect necessarily the culture of First Nation or their history. You have to dig a little bit further and it probably in some encyclopedia that you're going to find, uh, uh, you know, information you can rely on or uh, from from having been uh, in relation with with First Nations for many, many years, uh, which, uh, you know, obviously in Quebec, for this energy project, we we had to do, and and even the First Nations are partners for the construction of this um, power line to some extent on the Canadian side or Quebec side of it. So looking back at history, you also not only is it you know not uh, a Google it situation to find out in this particular era in, in these particular years without uh, burning it, but eighteen something right where were they? What were they wearing? What were their uh, habits of life? Uh, how would they have reacted? And I'm not saying I have the, the entirety of answers to that, but we gave our best answers uh, to it uh, in the book. And then not only that, but you have to take um, into account today. Uh, the book will be read by people living in, in 2022. And, and you do not want to go on to uh, you know, topics that are heating up today or that are, you know, going to bring your book in a direction, or maybe you do want that or you don't want that. So you have to sort of uh, not only get it right for the years that you're bringing the heroes in, but uh, measure, anticipate, and make decisions about where you want to bring your, your readers uh, mm -hmm. that are, uh, uh, you know, in this day and age. So and, and it was very interesting to... to send back the, the, that feedback, uh, keep it to a relatively short because, you know, we want to advance the book and I'm not writing a thesis on that topic. Uh, keep it strategic. Uh, and uh, how many notes like that did I write to, to the prime minister, for example? So on that front, I think I, I, 
I, I sort of was clear, but these guys have minds that go into thousand direction. I mean, layers and layers of, of information. And I'm, I'm sure you, you as writers uh, are the same. It, it's quite impressive to realize the complexity of what comes behind writing. Uh, and, and I was glad to discover that with Matt uh, and, and Morgan, who are very productive uh, <laughs> writers. Uh, I can say that. I appreciate that. And, and I think, you know, Rylan, just to go back to something you were saying about Googling it, I think, you know, the reality is you have to, you have to be consistently keeping up with news and research and uh, ideas, right? Like it's not necessarily about if there's a specific point in the story that you need to understand something, you need to go Google it or learn about it or meet with people. It's that you should have enough of a, you know, background of the various topics that you might find interesting that are just like ready in your arsenal as you're mm -hmm. going because I think it's less about the need to google something and more about the understanding of where you need to go to get the information right. that you need mm -hmm. and you don't know that without staying current with events right like I you know I, I don't understand um you know writers who write very like if you're a writer who writes science fiction about the future how you don't keep up with space and futurism and read futurism magazine every week it's like mm -hmm. like the topics that you write about you need to be able to keep up with them because i look at um i look at like science fiction and genre writing as kind of the the way that uh philosophers of today you know disseminate their information like we don't have philosophers in the way that we did in the past it's more through writing and through stories and through allegories and tropes and motifs and i think that that's only possible by people being able to use uh the world around them today and capitulate and ideate on how that could work in the future yeah i want to i want to hit two points about that one is that uh, you know, I think, Matt, you have a respect for the genres. I think a lot of writers that come into genres from outside of genres don't have respect. I watched uh, Don't Worry Baby recently, and that is someone who has never read a, sh a science fiction novel in their life trying to make a science fiction story. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't, nothing about their world building makes a particle of sense. <laughs> and you can kind of like, oh, everything's so pretty. I'm just going to forget trying to explain to myself how this concept works like the the concept you pull the tiniest thread of how that concept is supposed to work it collapses immediately it makes no sense whatsoever and i think if the writer had respect for it uh you know when you when you're going to do something that is for example in the same universe as the stepford wives you should maybe read the Stepford Wives and see the pitfalls and see what problems have already been solved and what how problems haven't been solved. I think if you're going along with tropes, the smart thing is always what has the trope never addressed before? You know, I think I, I actually say it's proof it's of human evolution that the first version of Westworld, the premise is, oh, my God, murder rob robots are going to kill us in the amusement park. And the second, yeah. and the second <laughs> version of Westworld, the primary concept is, what kind of sick maniac wants to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to murder and rape robots in an amusement park? 
What is wrong with those people? You know, maybe they all deserve to die. Maybe the robots had a real good reason to go apeshit and murder everybody because of how they were being treated. Like that's a, to me, like that's a sign of like, you look at that thing and go, well, I don't know. Yul Brenner, the guy had shot him seven times before Yul came back and blew his brains out. Like Yul, Yul had a legitimate beef there. So uh, I think, you know, respecting the genre and respecting that, you know, all of these ideas have been done before and how have they been done and what can we learn from how they've been done is a, is a, is a pretty important thing. The other thing I wanted to say about research, and this is, you know, anyone who's considers themselves a half-assed historian, you, if you want to know about a thing, you can't read one book. Sadly, you have to read 10 books because you might read the one book by the person who has an ax to grind that and is wrong and is just dead yes. wrong. And you read 10 books and you collate the information. And yeah, for every aspect of every story, that can be a lot of work. I uh, I was asked to do an eight-page Alan Quatermain story a couple of months ago. And I said yes. And the minute I hit the email send, I went, now I have to research South Africa for a week to write eight, <laughs> to write, to write eight pages. Like it's literally eight pages. I need to I need to learn about 19th century South mm. at Natal. Uh, okay, but I did my research. I actually have a friend who lives in Johannesburg. I reached out to her and said, "Tell me about this. Tell me about this. You ever been to this beach? I was thinking about sending a scene on this beach. Is it a good <clears> beach? Like you know." Just a bunch of, and she put yeah. me in touch with some other people who knew more about South African history than she did and all of that. But like, or you can just go, well, I saw King Solomon's Mines and I'll just, you know, I'll <laughs> accept that as that's how Africa was. Let me I'll do that. The 1953 <laughs> Hollywood version of South Africa as the South Africa of 1890 and just run with it, you know. And it, it was on to, to, uh, to make some grounds on what you're saying. You know, we were always talking and saying, what issues could we go back and fix? Well, that's a big question because, you know, you have to look at what, you know, what resources were lacking or what's, uh, what's a limit today in, in how we want to transition to clean energy. So we had multiple, multiple conversations about that. And some leads we, we didn't go into and, and some we did. Uh, maybe in another book one day we'll, we'll do... Uh, you know, there's a whole area of critical minerals that, that we didn't touch on, but we discussed at length what are the issues that we're going to go back and fix and is it possible and why and is it really relevant and is it really impactful? So, and, well, and, you know, think, the, sorry, David, just, just real quick, sorry, uh, to just build on what Kat was saying, I think one of the, the key reasons that we didn't necessarily go in all the different directions is because of that, that core tenant that we were trying to get out of the book, which is asking the question. I think you know we we decided to focus on one area because that allows people to ponder. When you add multiple areas, you start becoming preachy, and I think yeah. if you become preachy, you almost do the reverse of your your goal. You know, people who are writing about a topic who you know try to tackle the fifteen nuances that that topic has gets people in the weeds, right? And, and if your goal is to make people wonder what can be possible, then you should focus on a couple of things and allow that to blossom rather than be like, right. hey, I'm going to give you a dissertation, right? This is yeah. a sci-fi story. It's not a dissertation. And I think understanding that medium allows you to figure out what is important in those questions. 
Well, the, the, yeah, yeah, it, 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 yeah, posing questions is a big thing, but also it's like, yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the book is, it's not a speech that you're giving. It is, it is, it, it, the book should read like a conversation that's being had. Here's mm -hmm. what one side is saying. Here's what other side is saying. Uh, this isn't a black and white issue. Like where, you know, where, where um, consensus happens, where progress happens is in a gray area. Like uh, uh, particularly in the United States, we are not a gray area uh, country at this point. We line up on our polls and then nothing happens, right? Um, but if you can present it in that way, this is what's interesting to me is that you're, um, you, you, you create a conversation, you pose some questions and then you're handing it off to the library. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that, exactly. That, that, and, and the yeah. reader is kind of saying, oh, where would you have brought the story? What would you have yeah. done? In which era would you, your hero have fallen? Yeah. So yeah, that yeah. this is, yeah, you're right. You know, you leave yeah. the, the reader with, with questioning. It's his turn to question himself about, mm -hmm. about the crisis. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and you know, I, I also want to, you know, mention as an aside that it's intellectual honesty is everything. Uh, you know, being honest about what you're, what story you're telling, not sort of fudging the evidence of your experiment to make sure the experiment comes out the way you want it to. A good friend of mine, once upon a time, wrote a alternative history story in which the Colombian, uh, or I should say, the Spanish invasion of uh, Central America fails. And he had a good like hinge point for why it failed. So it took place in late 20th century America that's run by the Aztec empire. But in the late 20th century America run by the Aztec empire, uh, uh, North American Indians are the permanent underclass who are treated terribly. And I also thought it was very, very, and this is, you know, a Mexican guy with a very Mexican outlook who obviously thinks it would be nice if the Colombian invasion hadn't happened on a certain level. He also wrote a science fiction novel in which that was the case, but there were no computers and there were no atomic energy. And the empires of Europe were still the empires of Europe, fighting and squabbling with each other, but it's an America that doesn't give a shit about the empires of Europe fighting with each other, and an America that doesn't have the vast immigrant culture. So mm -hmm. that immigrant universe that gives you Albert Einstein teaching it at Princeton never happens. Albert Einstein never leaves Europe, you know? So all of these technological, you know, no one has been to the moon in a world where the Aztec empire didn't crumble. And I think that was a very honest, you know, he could have absolutely written a thing that was like the Spanish empire failed and the Aztec empire creates a paradise on earth in North and Central America. And he went, yeah, that wouldn't, intellectual honesty, that wouldn't be what would have happened, in my opinion, if there was no, this horrible thing that was genocidal and terrible, it also led to the world that we have today, like it or not. And you have to wipe all that away. If you go down that alternate history timeline, you also have to give up computers. You also have to give you're also giving up space travel and atomic energy. You know, it's very interesting to me. Oh, there, there, there's, a, there, there's a great, um, there's a great sort of theme that I've, I've heard many times, which is, you know, sociopaths create the innovation, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an uncomfortable reality to think about, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, the people who want to play nice and, and, and keep everybody happy aren't the ones taking the risks to, you know, push, society forward and you know that always gets toggled with the 
um, with the <clears> old <throat> homage that you know humanity is a hundred a uh, hundred train uh, train car a uh, hundred car train pushing forward, and the first car is all the scientists dragging the other ninety nine with them. Yeah. No, and to get back to what you guys are doing and what the the premise of a project like this is, uh, there's a little historical oddity that it has always fascinated me that H.G. Wells, like you were saying, Matt, was a guy who kept up with the magazines, who followed science. And he wrote a book called The World Set Free in, I don't know, 1911, something like that, in which he used the, he coined the phrase atomic bomb. And according to what I've read, every phys physicist read that book and went, oh, no, <laughs> some <laughs> politician is going to read this friggin' science fiction novel and someone's going to call Enrico Fermi and ask him if that's a real thing. Someone's going <laughs> to call Niels Bohr on the phone and say, so, atomic bomb, huh? What do you think, Nils? Is that a thing? Can we do that? And then, you know, and these same, it was in a book I read about Heisenberg where there was like some, you know, I think it was Nils Bohr at some press conference announcing some atomic theory breakthrough and a journalist raised his hands. And so in Mr. Wells' book, the world set free. He uses this term atomic bomb and upon apparently every physicist in the room turned white <laughs> and went, well, cat's out of the bag. We are now headed towards a world where someone's going to make somebody make, and you know, Nelson, well, that's still many years off. And, you know, we, uh, we can't really do that with the available technology at the time, you know, and meanwhile, somewhere in, you know, somewhere in the Pentagon, someone goes, write this down, atomic bomb. <laughs> really that sounds fantastic let's have four of those i couldn't know. agree more david i i have this point of view on the world which is all science started as fiction mm -hmm. right i think mm -hmm. i think every piece of science ever created was whether it's a philosopher or a science fiction writer or just someone that had an idea had some idea about something that was not a reality and right. then a bunch of people use science to bring that to life Right. Someone looked at a rock face and thought, you know, if you could make some kind of spike that you could hammer into it, I bet I could climb that damn thing. And someone <laughs> invented the piton, you know, like exactly. someone. But someone had to look at the rock face and go, I bet if you stuck a metal spike in there real good, <laughs> you know, you might be able to climb the damn thing. And, you know, well, I mean, it, 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 and it's the same with hydro. I mean, you, know, you could you could live in, in Quebec and look at all this water and this land and do nothing with it. Or you can, you know, build this unimaginable engineering work and, you know, 50, 60 years later, you know, find your moment by channeling all that energy. I mean, I still, I'm still impressed that this was done in the 70s. Right. Yeah. Right. But I mean, again, it's that funny thing where you said it's about renewable energy and I don't know that much about the book. And I went, well, it's got to be hydropower if it's Quebec, right? Because yeah. <laughs> it's not solar. I'm. It's not. You know, wind. If it was set in new, if it was Newfoundland, I would say wind, maybe. But well, you, you know, Quebec water. was a precursor in wind in yeah. the '90s. We yeah. had the social debate, and I think this is. I think the second phase of Quebec is now that hydro is 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 exporting widely is to build fields of of onshore wind. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. The U.S. is bu building fields of offshore wind. It's much faster to do onshore wind sure. uh, and have uh, First Nations at, at, as partner 50-50 uh, yeah. in those project, projects and, and produce, uh, you know, 
10,000 or even 20,000 megawatts of, of wind uh, and, and bring that into the system. This is what I think will where Quebec will go next. And maybe there's a graphic novel about that. Yeah. No, and, and considering the damage that the oil companies are willing to do to the planet just to get at the oil and just to get the oil into the tankers and get the tankers to your, like, putting up a couple of windmills uh, is way less of a scar uh, on, on the environment than, uh, than all of, you know, than, than making there be earthquakes where there were never earthquakes before because of fracking. Like there's, yeah, there, there's know. this advantage to everything. You know, if you start yeah. looking at, you know, the, the consequence of windmills or the materials used for it. And Canada is a country where, you know, the West of Canada survives by selling oil to market. Uh, mm -hmm. th this is what it has to offer to the world. I think they're doing big efforts to be greener, huge efforts that are not often talked about, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reality uh, that, uh, that it's Canada. You know, one side mm -hmm. is producing green energy, the other side is, is producing fossil. I'd rather take my oil from Canada than Venezuela or countries right. uh, that have issues or, or different values, so. Yeah, no, I'm, absolutely. But, and you know, I wanna say as an aside that it's, the tricky thing is always in getting to your utopia is always that the old world stubbornly refuses to stop existing. That's there's so a, true. That's so there's true. There's a reason why utopian fantasies like Star Trek are always like, well, and then there was a third world war uh, that wiped everything out. And then we could build gleaming monorails everywhere, you know, and bullet trains and it was all fine. But it's like in the real world, you're like, well, stubbornly, we still have a quarter trillion cars driving around the planet and they're not just going to vanish. You know, yes, we, can't, we can't just snap our fingers and suddenly those cars cease to be. Exactly. Without, That's why the that third world war to clean everything up for us. Yeah. That the, at the beginning I said, it's, it cannot be just rosy ideology. That was what we talked about at the beginning of this graphic novel and the, the sort of bubble we wanted to burst to reach younger generations uh, with this yeah. novel and, and spark these kinds of realization that you're talking about. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's, you know, and again, I grew up in the sixties and seventies and the whole, the the universe of infinite resources and right. now i live in southern california and i think real hard about how long i run the tap in the bathroom yeah. oh god yeah i mean you it's, know, I... I think real you know when i when i need to warm up the the water for a shower i literally put a bucket under it and water the garden with that water that we use to warm up because it's like i get yeah, the idea of that water all just going back into the pipes is like yeesh. That's rough. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> certainly like it's an eye opener when you live in California. I, I in Quebec, we we we're not conscious of that. And that, when I mm -hmm. came to California, I realized, wow, it's all about the availability of water, all about. And yeah. I'm now I'm I farm avocados, and I know all about that. And it's uh it's a real eye opener. Water and yeah. you know, wind is your enemy here, and yeah. sun, and you know. So one of the one of the funnier uh, things I've seen on Twitter lately. There's a map that uh, our Republican brethren are, are very fond of that shows the red areas and the blue areas, mm. like the areas that vote red and the areas that vote blue. But if you actually know the geography, you go like that red is mostly empty wasteland. Actually, like all that, those giant stretches of red, nobody actually lives there. And someone replied to that map one, you know, the question was like uh, the tweet accompanying the map was like, you know, explain this exclamation point. And the guy said, human 
beings settle in river valleys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. like uh, I can explain this map by saying that there's no water in any of that red and mm -hmm. nobody can live there. It's not really, you'd have to build a pipeline to get people to live there. Uh, you know, people, human beings live on ocean banks, on ocean shores, and in river valleys pretty much for the last 200,000 years. <laughs> yep. So that doesn't, that kind of explains why your electoral map, all the blue areas are like, oh, there's where the river is. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, I want to talk briefly before we go, we're running out of time, but about uh, Remnant, Matt. Oh, yes. Uh, what is going on? What, what is the status of that project? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, Remnant uh, came out right before Fifth Force. So it was uh, Morgan, myself, and Hero Project's uh, graphic novel earlier this year. It's a crime noir future art deco punk story um, where we take, you know, what we love as the attire of the 1920s, put it in the far future and use it as um you know the economic and technological system sort of failed us um so we decided to go back to a more simpler time uh, mm -hmm. and use more simpler type of clothing and we follow a murder and we find out that underneath the skin of the murdered is a robotic skeleton and our uh main detective abel kane goes down alice in wonderhole alice in mm -hmm. wonderland's uh, rabbit hole and is he the last human remaining on earth and uh, he doesn't know. And uh, right. we kind of, you know, follow that idea. But, you know, the main core idea of the story that we're trying to tell is, does economic systems dictate stability of a society? Or do ideas and people dictate the stability of society? And if you remove the money and you remove the people, what's left? Hmm. That sounds fascinating. And where is that available? Uh, Barnes and Nobles, HeavyMetal.com, everywhere you can get the Fifth Force, you can get Remnant. And what's what form is it in? I'm sorry if I didn't catch that. Is it it's a graphic a, novel? Yeah, yeah, full graphic novel. So yeah, Hero put out three graphic novels this year. Stable back in February, uh, Remnant in September, and Fifth Force uh, just last month in November. Great. And I have to ask the obvious question: Is there uh, are, is there any interest or? Uh, plan for a sequel to fifth force i think there's a lot of interest no you uh, don't have to call it the sixth force <laughs> we're, we're definitely excited about exploring those uh opportunities right now we're just really excited about sharing this book uh with as many people that we can and then sort of figure out uh what sort of story we could tell within the the universe at the end of it we kind of leave the story on a nice cliffhanger that also sort of feels conclusionary so we could go both ways cool that is yeah. good to know well thank you so much for coming on it was really informative and i you know i had a feeling it would read to a talk about you know what it what can science fiction do for you <laughs> you know what can science fiction do for society i think the answer is usually a lot yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, what, 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 what it can and should be, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it, again, we see this over and over again on the show. It's like if you're gonna, if you're gonna spend all of this time creating something, pouring your 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 time, your money, your your sweat into something, it might as well be about something, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, there's there, there's so much, 
I don't know. There's so much vanilla ice cream out there. You know, let's let let's give the world some Rocky Road and uh, and you know with a side of vegetables. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and I like that. That's what I love about. It. I love having you know Matt and the heavy metal folks on because um, you know uh, their stuff is entertaining as hell, uh, and I always love it. And, and of course, that's what you want to do first and foremost. You want to keep people flipping those pages and and intrigued. But um, but you know they're they push things further, you know, they, they realize that there's a responsibility and, 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 you know, in, in, in creating, you know, and, uh, and, and they always have something to say, you know, um, and, and, and I think that's awesome. So sign me up. I'm, Cheers. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm ordering it. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so Catherine, where can people find you, uh, around the internet and look you up? Oh God! I think if you Google my name, you'll you'll see uh, the thread of my career. Uh, mostly, you know, what I've been a spokesperson to global CEOs, prime minister, uh, premier of Quebec, um, and I'm on the board of a, a couple of companies and nonprofits. So, and of course, you know, the fifth force uh, on the hero projects and heavy metal websites. Great, and Matthew. Uh, find me at Matthew Medney on socials or at uh, Heavy Metal or at Hero Projects HQ. Uh, and uh, yeah, really excited to talk more about the fifth force. Anyone has any questions, don't hesitate to DM and ask them. And you know, just to give that last update, it's four nothing Brazil in the 50th. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was totally Matt, that was going to be my now. I wasn't going to let yeah. you go without getting the final, yeah. you know, where this what, what quarter are we in? Where are we at? Uh, second half. Okay, yeah. second half. Yeah, yeah. If you're watching the video feed, you can you can just sort of track the goals, you know, because Matt is like <laughs> very silently, very politely, very uh, yeah, and uh, uh, yeah. Um, with that, and I Ryland? am yeah, I am uh, at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That is R Y L E N D G R A N T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just sort of drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it, and so now I have to <laughs> spell it for you. Um, but my books, Aberrant, Banjax, Suicide Jockeys can be found, uh, in, uh, you know, find comic shops everywhere. Look for Fashing Origins, uh, in your comic shop via Dynamite very soon. Um, yeah, watch my social media, movie news to come and all that. So just, uh, watch this space. What do you got, Avaloni? Cool. Uh, I am David Avaloni, uh, can be found at David Avaloni Freelance, uh, I am, uh, because of my interesting last name, I am very easily Googled. Uh, you have to get, <laughs> it's only on about page 12 of Google results that you get to uh, Lieutenant David Avalone, who uh, retired from the military and became a lawyer. Seems like a very nice guy. Uh, but I'm the first 11 pages before him. You can find all my social medias and the website and all that. Next thing I have coming out, probably a week after this premieres will be Elvira in Horrorland number five, which is Elvira in the universe of David Cronenberg. In early, uh, I think in January, Savage Tales number two drops, in which I finally get to deal with uh, John Carter being a Confederate cavalry officer, which I'm sure will upset a lot of people. And uh, coming later in the year should be Elvira in Monsterland, which I'm writing right now. And hopefully Two-Fisted Fairy Tales, a creator-owned comic uh, of mine which sets the classic fairy tales during World War II, because that's how my father told them to me when I was a little boy. Uh, anyway, look for all of that. Thank you so much to Matthew and Catherine for, having, for coming on the show, and we will see you on the next exciting episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. 
If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.